0: Good morning, church. If you open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, this has been a wonderful series. I hope you are enjoying it. I have one friend who was taking time every day to read through 1 Peter. It only takes about 15 to 20 minutes, but staying familiar with it in the series, or take some time to memorize a portion of it, I encourage you to be in the book of First Peter as we go through this series together. So let's begin as we look at First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Father, we come to your word today that we might be fed. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock, and my Redeemer. Amen. Well, I recently had lunch with my friend Bev Farley. She and Steve have known me since I was about 16 years old and a brand new Christian, and we went to a favorite restaurant of hers TJ's Restaurant and Drinkery in Paoli, and I ordered guajillo pork and waffles. Slow cooked. Guajillo pineapple pulled pork, savory cornbread cheddar waffle, pica de gallo, queso fresco. Now, I do enjoy food, and I order things that I like, but I'm rarely wowed by food. But let me tell you, the first bite was so good that Bev will tell you I talked about it for the rest of lunch. I was cutting it up into smaller and smaller pieces just so I could keep eating. I couldn't stop thinking about when I could bring Wendy out there for dinner so that I could get it again and that she could try it. The taste initiated longing, and the flavor made me want more. And this is the way that we are supposed to be with God's word. In the word, we get a taste of God's goodness and it makes us desire more and more and to live lives pleasing to God. Now, the problem that Peter addresses here is that we are prone to neglect God's word and not deal with our sins. See, our natural inclination is to long for sin and put away God's word. It's in tasting God's goodness in his word that reverses that desire. And if we lose a taste for God's goodness in his word, our sin will revive. The only remedy, the only means to put away sin is intense, regular pursuit and longing of God's word. We will not love each other as we ought Unless we fervently long for the word of God. We will not mature into this glorious salvation without drinking deeply of God's word. God's eternal word saves us and transforms us. God's word is where we find the power to put away sin and live in God's abundant goodness. God's word is where we find the power to put away sin and live in God's abundant goodness. So we're going to look at three points today. The power of God's goodness, the putting away of sin, and the longing for God's word. Our first point, the power of God's goodness. Verse 3 here says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, why are we starting at the end of this passage? It's because tasting that the Lord is good is the prerequisite for putting away sin and longing for God's word. Peter's saying you will be able to do these things if you really have tasted that the Lord is good. He's quoting Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The power of God's goodness is that just a taste transforms us. In the Pixar movie Ratatouille, the villain is a food critic named Anton Ego. He is dour. He is sour. He's mean-spirited. He's bored with life. He's critical, arrogant. His face is frozen in a frown. And he comes in to critique their restaurant and he is set to destroy them. Now instead of offering up some sort of fine french cuisine they serve him ratatouille which is a, a peasant's meal vegetables eaten out in the country hardly something you would serve to impress Igo sneeringly takes one disdainful bite and then the taste hits him and his eyes Get wide, and he is instantly transported in his mind back in time. And we see him as a small boy standing in the doorway of his home. There's a tear on his face, he's just hurt himself, and he's looking there at his mother in the kitchen. And she gives him a compassionate look. She sits him down, she gently strokes his cheek and serves him a bowl of ratatouille and comfort spreads across his young boy's face as he tastes it. And then we're transported back to the present and the sour-faced ego sits wide-eyed and stunned He drops his pen. He's overwhelmed by the unanticipated effect of the food and how good it tastes. In that moment, he is utterly transformed. His face brightens. A huge smile spreads across it. He eagerly takes another bite, savoring it, enjoying it. He even sends his compliments to the chef. That's what it means to taste and see. That's the power of God in our lives when we taste and see that the Lord is good. To taste and see means we have to experience God for ourselves. We must experience the transforming power of God's goodness in our lives. We must have the chance to get a good taste and to savor his goodness and be stunned and overwhelmed by it, amazed that he could be so good. And what is that goodness that we taste? It is God's character seen in the gospel. Psalm 34, 6 says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him. God's goodness is seen in the fact that he saves, he redeems, he gives salvation to those who are perishing. Peter said this earlier in chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. This is the way he says it. He says, you were ransomed. That means brought back from captivity. From the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. That means all humans were born into captivity of sin, disobedience to God. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Christ was the blood sacrifice that atoned for, paid for your sins. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, Jesus was pure and he died for our impurity. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Means Jesus existed as God for all eternity. But he was made manifest in the last times. That means God took on flesh, became a man in the person of Christ. And he did it for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead. Jesus died on the cross for you. God resurrected him back to life for you and gave him glory. What kind of God would go to such lengths to save a rebellious and sinful people? A good God. A very good God. This is the power of the goodness of God. The power of salvation and transformation and the result of his goodness in the gospel is that so your faith and your hope are in God. So have you tasted of God's goodness today? There are some of you who are hearing this and you would not say you're a Christian. You can't say, yes, I've tasted of God's goodness. And maybe you're hesitant. Maybe you're hesitant to taste and see because you have some questions about God. Why does he let bad things happen? Does he really punish people for eternity if they don't believe in Jesus? Now those questions and maybe the potential answers leave a bad taste in your mouth. But take a taste of the goodness of God. God in the gospel that we just heard. He loves you so much that he gave his own life to wash away your guilt and sin and to show you his goodness. Come and believe in him. Trust in him. He will help you with the questions that you have. For others, maybe you're resistant to taste and see because there are certain ways that you're living your life and you don't want to give them up in order to love God with everything you have. That way that you're living is more valuable to you than having a relationship with the all-glorious, completely satisfying, All-powerful, living God, who is an ever-present Heavenly Father, whose steadfast love never ends, who shows mercy to the undeserving, who is the essence of kindness and purity and goodness, and from whom your very life and breath comes every moment. Might I appeal to you today, the Word of God appeals to you today, to repent of living your own way and put your faith in Jesus. Church, it's important that we taste and see the goodness of God in the gospel every day. When we taste and see God's goodness, we see God's glory, and we're filled with God's joy, and we're sustained by God's hope, the power of God's goodness is that a taste will have a transformative effect in our lives. In God's word, we find the power to put away sin and live in God's abundant goodness. That brings us to our second point, the putting away of sin. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, then Peter says, put away sinful behavior. In verse 1, he says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. To put away sin means to cast it off, to take it off like old, grubby, dirty clothes and then get rid of them. Don't just pile them up off to the side where we can put them on again if we want to sin some more. No, throw them in the fire, burn them, put them away for good. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Kill it, mortify it. In our day and age, the word mortified usually means that we're so embarrassed we feel like we want to die. But spiritually speaking, we need to mortify our sin, kill Put it to death. The mortification of sin is when we actively put it off for the sake of godliness. Now, we think of sin as very outward, obvious things. Things like having sex outside of marriage, getting drunk, stealing, cheating, racist attitudes, homosexual activity, hustling, swindling, doing drugs to get high, looking at pornography. What we think of as very outward, obvious sins against God. And we usually look at a list like that and we think, well, hey, I'm, I'm doing pretty good with most of those. I mean, sure, maybe I look at pornography now and then or I get drunk every so often, but for the most part, I'm doing well. Well, first off, that sort of relative comparison falls short of God's call to be holy as he is holy in chapter 1, verse 16. And we need to repent and mortify these sins. But the areas that Peter calls us to put away are more subtle. They're under the surface, easier to overlook. We think of them as less serious. Jerry Bridges refers to these sorts of things as respectable sins. He wrote a book with that title. I've mentioned it before, and I recommend it. These are sins that we don't give all that much attention to putting off because we're fairly comfortable with them. Little white lies that we don't think hurt anyone, that's deceit. Wishing in our hearts we had something that someone else has, that's envy. But this makes them actually more dangerous because we're comfortable with them. We never want to be comfortable with sin. That's like curling up in your sleeping bag with a couple of rattlesnakes, sin kills. And if we overlook these sorts of respectable sins that work in our lives, they can be deadly. The Bible warns us about sin because no matter how strong a Christian we think we are, we are susceptible to temptations. When we think we're safe, that's when we let our guard down and sin will win. Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We must be careful. We must let the word of God speak to us about our sin. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, they're all contrary to the love that we're supposed to have for one another. In chapter one, verse 22, a sincere brotherly love where we're loving one another with a pure heart. So let's look at these sins and evaluate our lives. The first is malice. Malice is anger that generates a desire for harm. It's wanting bad things to happen to someone else. We may not realize that it's there, and it can start with a small offense. Maybe someone does something that hurts us, or they do something we just disagree with, and we begin to let that thing define their whole character. We move from not wanting to see them prosper to actually taking some sense of satisfaction when we see them fail. Now, we might be too mature to express joy in their misfortune, but in our hearts, we know that when something bad happens to them, our first response is not to be compassionate. We think they got what they deserved. We want them to experience harm. That's malice. It's like a parent warning a kid not to jump off the roof and then in exasperation saying, well, I hope he breaks his arm. Or it might be someone who got the job that you wanted or the title that you hoped for or who married someone you wish you had married or hurt someone you loved. And somewhere in your heart, you hide the idea that you want them to pay for or you want them to be unhappy in it, or as unhappy as you feel. You want it to be taken away from them. That is malice. It hides in our hearts, and we must put it away. The second is deceit. Deceit, or guile, is lying and deceiving. It's crafty explanations to manipulate others or avoid responsibility. Deceit's one of the ways that we try to protect ourselves from feeling blamed or admitting something is our own fault. We might use it to preserve our reputation or to get others in trouble. Maybe it's a child who exaggerates what another child did or how a teacher treated them because they know that their parents will jump into defensive or even vengeful action. Maybe it's being less than honest about how long you were at the office because you actually went out for a drink with coworkers that you tend to find attractive, but you just don't tell your spouse. You just say, work ran, ran late. Or maybe it's being less than honest about what you're looking at on your computer. It could be that because something you neglected, someone else is inconvenienced, but you lie. You blame it on an email malfunction or your administrative assistant or on a person that you don't get along with. It's deceit. Deceit breaks down relationships. It undermines trust between people and it distorts our character. Satan is the father of lies. We're following the wrong father when we harbor deceit. We must put away deceit and follow our heavenly father who will never lie, Hebrews 8, 6.18 tells us. The third area is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is saying one thing and doing another. Matthew Henry says it's being counterfeit, imitating something in a way that's not genuine. Do we act one way around a certain group of friends and then change the way we act or talk around other friends? Our church friends and then our school or our work or neighborhood friends? Or our church friends who we think are more strict than we prefer and our other church friends who understand where we're coming from? And are more comfortable overlooking slander and hypocrisy. The Bible calls us to put away hypocrisy. Now, I'm not trying to be a downer by going through these things. Okay? The Word of God is speaking to us. Let's trust Jesus. Let's listen and realize maybe the Holy Spirit wants to do a little surgery on us today. That's the way it felt when I was writing this message. I'm having surgery done. It might be painful, but it might also save our lives to have some of that sin cut out. The fourth is envy. Jerry Bridges says, Envy is the painful and oftentimes resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by someone else. Sometimes we just resent the other person for having something we don't have. But we don't just envy people in general. Usually there are two conditions that tempt us to envy. First, we tend to envy those with whom we most closely identify, our friends and our peers. Second, we tend to envy them in areas we value most. Whenever we compare ourselves with anyone whose circumstances seem better than ours, we face the temptation to envy him or her. We may not even want the better circumstances of our neighbor or friend. We just resent their having them. Envy and resentment will tear us apart and break down the brotherly love that we're supposed to not only be pursuing, but also be enjoying. Ask yourself, when is my heart stirred to want something that someone else has? There are a lot of things that tempt us in this way. And I know it might feel cliched right now, but I'm going to mention social media here. Let me say, I don't believe that social media is sinful. I do believe that our hearts are. And there's a lot of temptation both to envy others and maybe to boast so that others envy us. That can drive a lot of what happens on social media. If we're trying to put off envy, perhaps we have to be more careful with going to the places where our envy is most stirred. Maybe looking at someone else's exercise results and how their body looks in their posts tempts you to envy. Or maybe we are posting exercise or fashion poses because we want someone or just people in general to be envious of us. We see how much fun everyone seems to be having together on TikTok and we're sitting there watching the videos at home on a Friday night in sweatpants with nothing else to do and we're envious of what it seems their lives are compared to our own. Again, it is, it's fine to share pictures. It's fine to share pictures of your game nights and concerts you go to, of your home decor, of your date nights and vacations, and your hanging out with friends. It's okay to feel good about those things. It's okay to want to share your delight and your gratitude to God for them. But it might be worth asking, why do I want to share this with everyone right now? Should I consider how it might Promote a culture of envy, or do I need to even ask myself, do I feel better when other people envy the image that I present of myself? Envy will keep us from loving one another with pure hearts. Put away envy. If you feel envious, ask God to help you to learn to rejoice with those who rejoice, to be content in Christ and trust God for how he has blessed you. And if you're experiencing God's blessing in a certain way, receive it with thanks. And don't only feel satisfied if you're sharing that with the whole world. And then last is slander. Slander is speaking about others in a way that tarnishes someone else's reputation. We all do this, whether we realize it and admit it or not. Commentator William Harrell says, The aim of the slanderer is the promotion of the slanderer at the expense of the one slandered. Slander is the opposite of that love which covers a multitude of sins. The opposite of covering a multitude of sins is to talk about people's faults, to make a frequent topic of conversation what someone else has done wrong, to spend time with people discussing the weaknesses and sins of friends who are not there, to talk about what everybody really thinks about someone else behind their back. Jerry Bridges again says we slander when we ascribe wrong motives to people even when we can't see their hearts or know their particular circumstances. We slander when we say another believer is not committed when he or she doesn't practice the same spiritual disciplines or engage in the same Christian activities that we engage in. We slander when we blow out of proportion another person's sin and make that person appear to be more sinful than he or she really is. This cuts me. I don't want to think of myself as someone who slanders, but I find myself in these descriptions, blowing other people's sin out of proportion to make them appear more sinful than they are or surely more sinful than I am. Lord God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on us. Help us to put off slander and love others with a sincere brotherly love. Beloved, the word of God is speaking to us. The Holy Spirit is here. Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way that is everlasting Let Jesus search our hearts and see what hides there. And then let our faith and hope be in God. Let the precious blood of Christ wash you clean. Let him purify your soul so that you can love others with a sincere brotherly love and a pure heart. This is the grace of the gospel in putting away sin. And how does God do this? He does it through his word. And that brings us to our last point, the longing for God's word, the longing for God's word. Aristotle is credited with coining the phrase, nature abhors a vacuum. It means that if you remove something from a space, something else will fill it. The best way to get air out of a glass is to fill it with water. You see this principle displayed if you ever clean your garage, right? You make an empty space. And then all of the things that you don't want and you shouldn't keep and that others give you because they don't want them anymore, but they can't bring themselves to throw them away, they come in and they fill that space. The point is that if all we do is put away sin, something is going to come and fill that space It should put fear in our hearts when Jesus tells a parable like Luke 11 where the unclean spirit leaves a person and it wanders over waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Space cleared out, but nothing replaced it. And then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. We need to not just put away sin, we need something to take sin's place. There's a message from the early 1800s by Thomas Chalmers. It's gained popularity recently. We've mentioned it before. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he explores this idea saying that if we put away one habit, we must substitute another desire and another line or habit of exertion in its place. And the most effectual way of withdrawing the mind from one object is not turning it upon desolate and unpeopled vacancy, but by presenting to its regards another object still more alluring. Another object still more alluring. If you find something new to love, it will eliminate the first love in your heart. Peter says that we should put away sin by loving god's word god's word is another object still more alluring verse 2 says like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation now the milk here is not like in 1 corinthians 3 or hebrews 5 where we're called to mature from milk to meat But rather here, this milk is a positive metaphor of a deep desire to find our thirst satisfied and be nourished by the word of God. We see that the milk is God's word because in chapter one, verse 23, it says, since you've been born again through the living and abiding word of God. Since you were born by the word, Now, as a newborn infant cries out in hunger for its mother milk, so we should be like newborn infants, longing for the pure spiritual milk of God's word so that we can grow and mature into the salvation that God has given us. The point is, the word of God is our life. The word of God is our nourishment. It is our new love. It is the new affection that puts away old affections. It is the water that displaces the air in the glass of our hearts. The word replaces sin. It casts it out and fills us with Christ. John Piper, in his book, Reading the Bible Spiritually Supernaturally, says it this way. It all starts with God's gift of seeing. And this seeing gives rise to savoring. Taste and see. And this savoring pushes out the deceitful desires that tricked us into thinking anything is more satisfying than God. And that all important seeing happens as we read the Word of God. In effect, then, Jesus, Peter, and Paul trace authentic change. Do you want to change? Do you want authentic change? Jesus and Peter and Paul trace authentic change back to seeing and savoring the glory of Christ as the supreme treasure in our lives as we read the inspired scriptures. It transforms us from self-preoccupied, self-protecting, self-exalting people into Christ-like servants who long for the temporal and eternal good of others. Reading God's word is where we taste God's goodness and glory again and again and again and again. And that repeated tasting makes us so satisfied in God that our sin is put away. And the result is that we love one another from pure hearts with sincere brotherly love. Where God's word is, God is. When you read God's word, God is speaking to you. When you meditate on God's word, you are spending time with Jesus. And the more you taste of his goodness, the more you will long for that nourishing milk of God's word. You want to get more and more. You want to hunger for it. Take a bite and savor it and chew it slowly and get the flavor on your tongue and enjoy the nuances and let it linger and feel satisfied. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you and my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you. Jesus in Matthew 4, he was physically hungry, but he rebuked the devil by quoting scripture. It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In John 6, Jesus tells us, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the kind of longing that the word of God expresses and produces in us. So then why is it so hard to read our Bibles? Commentator Juan Sanchez says, If we don't crave the pure spiritual milk, it may be that we are taking in so much of the world's milk that we're not hungry for the milk God offers. In that case, we need to evaluate everything we are taking into our minds and hearts, or it could very well be that we have forgotten that the Lord is good, in which case we need to turn to His pure spiritual milk so that we can discover His goodness to us, All over again. Remember, church, the Bible is not boring. We are lazy. (laughs) I'm not trying to offend anyone. I'm confessing that. I'm lazy when it comes to the Word of God. It's why we need these verses to wake us up, to pull us away from the pig trough and bring us back to the banquet table. If you feel like the Bible is boring You need to pray and ask God to show you that it is the living and abiding Word of God. And it can take your diseased, limp, barely beating, or stone-cold, dead heart and revive it. If you feel like the Bible is hard to understand, that's okay. You'll find that the message of the gospel, which is the most important message and the only essential message in the world, is easy to understand in the Bible. But some of the Bible is harder to understand. And some of it's really hard. We should accept the challenge. When we don't understand, work harder to try and understand. Read it again. Ask questions of it. Try to follow the logic. Pray and ask God to reveal to you. Read the notes in your study Bible. If you don't have a study Bible, ask for a study Bible for Christmas. If you don't understand it, read commentaries by good biblical scholars. Talk to friends. Talk to a pastor. You want to know Jesus, right? It's a relationship, and relationships take work. He's speaking to you in his word. And we should long to hear him. We should long to hear his voice. Long to hear him speaking to us. We need to hear him tell us that he's good and that he's working good plans in our lives. We need to hear him tell us how much he loves us, enough to lay down his life for us. We need to hear him tell us That no matter how dirty we have gotten ourselves with sin, He has redeemed us and cleansed us and forgiven us. We need to hear Him tell us that when we feel lonely, we are not alone. Because He's always with us and He's never going to leave you or forsake you. Even when you sleep, He doesn't sleep. He watches over you. We need to hear Him tell us that there is a day coming. When this world is going to pass away and God is going to bring His children into eternal glory and total satisfaction, total joy, total wonder in His presence, just as He's always attended, and we will see Him face to face. That is the gift of God's Word to us. We taste and we see that the Lord is good. So this afternoon, tonight, or tomorrow... Open up your Bible. Don't skip it. Read a chapter. Read it out loud to your family at the dinner table, even if it feels weird. Keep doing it till it doesn't feel weird. Encourage someone this week with something you read in the Bible. This should be our normal activity. The Bible will do great good in your life and in our life as a church when we open it and read it. Let us long for God's Word. Because God's Word is where we find the power to put away sin and live in God's abundant goodness. Amen.